Open your Bible or navigate on your electronic device through Exodus chapter 17 so that you can follow along as we look at verses 1 through 7 this morning. Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. The topic, God sends Moses to strike the rock with his rod, providing water in the wilderness. The title of our message, The Emissary Strikes Rock. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we always desire that your spirit would be here to be our teacher. You promised, Lord, that after you left, you would send him to be with us, to come alongside us, to indwell us. And you said that he would teach us. There's so many things, Lord, that can only be taught by him supernaturally as he speaks to us between the soul and the spirit in the most innermost part of our hearts. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would do that, that we would give you the freedom to do that, that we would desire that you do that, that we would leave this place not just more knowledgeable, Lord, but knowing you in a deeper and greater way and changed uh, from glory to glory. Scripture says we see through a glass darkly right now. One day we'll see you face to face. We want to see you a little bit better, a little bit clearer this morning from having been here. Thank you for the privilege of worshiping you, of letting our hearts go before you, and now Feed us, Lord, and teach us, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. This morning, come and listen to my story about a man named Jed. Poor mountaineer, he barely kept his family fed. And then one day, he was shooting at some food, and up through the ground come a bubbling crude. All right, way better than first service. Give yourself a hand. First service completely blew it. Everybody said, oil. And then they, they, that was it. <laughs> Beverly Hillbillies, Buddy Ebsen's greatest role as Jed Clampett. Now, I'm no oil man, but I'd guess that a round from an old muzzle loader inadvertently shot into the ground at an angle isn't going to produce a geyser of oil that will get you an address in Beverly Hills. We're going to read about Moses striking a rock with his shepherd's rod. Water from the rock will gush to satisfy the needs of both the Israelites and their livestock. Critics who deny any supernatural or miraculous explanation for this event want us to believe Moses struck a naturally occurring aquifer. They want us to believe that he was the Jed Clampett of the wilderness and with a lucky strike found water for millions of Israelites and their livestock. Why is it so hard to believe God did and can do miracles? G.K. Chesterton once said, and I quote, the whole order of things is as outrageous as any miracle which could presume to violate it. You understand that? Just the order of things. Creation itself is so miraculous. It's miracles upon miracles. What's the problem if something violates that in order to prove uh, a point that God is trying to make? Now, we're going to take a look at this miracle strike. As we do, we're additionally going to see some things about God's leading, both then with the children of Israel and now with us. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, God will lead you to learn you. And number two, God will not lead you to leave you. So let's take a look first of all in verses one through three. God will lead you to learn you. I know what you're thinking. Gene should have paid more attention in English classes to grammar. I sound like Huck Finn, who said of Miss Watson, she tried to learn you your manners. <laughs> Turns out, and I quote, a sentence fragment that is often believed to be grammatically incorrect is actually completely correct. 
The word learn is actually rooted in an old English verb meaning to teach and can be used transitively in this manner, such as, I'm going to learn you a lesson. So I expect you all to bring that into your vocabulary now. Let's see how God learns us in these verses, beginning in verse one. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Put these two phrases together. According to the commandment of the Lord, there was no water. God specifically told Moses to lead the Israelites to a place where there would be no water, to lead them to a place of lack where he would have to supply their need. Look back on your life with the Lord and you can see times where you lacked. Maybe there was no employment, maybe you had no friends, maybe your health was falling. Those are times God wants to show himself sufficient for your needs. God brings you to lack to show you his overwhelming presence and his sufficiency for your needs. Have you encountered the term Generation Snowflake? Anybody familiar with that? It was one of 2016's Collins Dictionary Words of the Year. It's an informal and obviously derogatory way to describe the generation of people who became adults in the 2010s. So if you're here this morning, I apologize in advance. Uh, You're considered Generation Snowflake. And that's because you're viewed as being less resilient and more prone to taking offense than any previous generation in history. The suggestion is that like snowflakes, your delicate individuals and a slight increase in temperature sees you melt, often resulting in a high emotional response. It's proven true by the observation that some of those supposedly in Generation Snowflake suggest the label itself is causing them to have mental health issues. (laughs) Christians can be snowflakes. In the book of Hebrews, suffering from persecution, believers were drawing back from walking with the Lord. Things were just too tough, they thought, so they wanted to return to Judaism so that their family and community wouldn't persecute them. The writer to them, the writer to the Hebrews said, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. How's that for counsel? Let's say you come into church for counsel. Pastor Gene, I'm having this problem. Okay, you haven't bled yet, have you? What are you talking about? You haven't been martyred for your faith, have you? No, well, then get out of here. <laughs> I tell you, my counseling load has gone way down. <laughs> People wanna know our counseling philosophy, it's Hebrews 12.4. <laughs> None of the Hebrews had experienced such intense exhaustion or persecution that it brought them to death or martyrdom they were told to quit being snowflakes. One commentator said, God loves us, but he's not an overprotective parent who has us tied to his apron strings. He will send us into the most excruciating situations, especially to proclaim his word. God will do what he did with the apostle Paul with you and with me. You don't want to be a snowflake Christian. And so one of the first things to remember is God leads you to places of lack. It's not that you missed a turn somewhere, it's that you're right in the will of God. Verse two, therefore the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? 
Why do you tempt the Lord? Now, earlier on their journey, they had found water that was too bitter to drink. God made the bitter water of Marah drinkable and sweet by having a tree thrown into it. And in that study, we talked about how the tree prefigured the cross upon which Jesus died. Now, you'd think that since God provided water before, they'd believe that he would do it again, except that the circumstances were more severe. At Marah, there was water, even though it wasn't potable. At Rephidim, there was no water to be made potable. They were probably looking for more bitter water that they could make better, and they found no water at all. Now, in one sense, the need was the same, and God was the same, but the circumstances were more severe, and so it was a test of faith. In my life, the needs are usually the same. God is always the same, but my trials get more, not less severe as I walk with the Lord, testing my faith, testing your faith. Those of you who play video games, do the levels get easier or do they get harder as you progress? Well, they get harder and you want them to because that's the challenge and that's how you pick up rewards. You want to beat that highest level. I'm way behind on video games. I was champion of a pinball game one time at the Tyler Mall in Riverside. I used to stop in occasionally to make sure I still was the points leader, GJP. And if somebody knocked me off a few quarters in, I would kill that thing. Pinball. And then I peaked at pinball, and then after that, you know, I'm, all, I'm, I'm gone. Half the time I see these commercials on television, I think it's a show, and it's a video game, and I think, wow, that's a little bit too graphic for me. But anyway, you get the idea. The levels get harder. When you walk with the Lord, the levels get harder. But you know what? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when you need water, it doesn't matter if you have bitter water or no water, God can come through. Now... Moses deferred to God as well he should have. Sure, he was the point man, he was leading them, but it wasn't really his decision, it was God's. We'll see how it was that they tempted the Lord when we get to verse seven, but for now in verse three, and the people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Their thirst was real, Their need for water was, in fact, a matter of life and death. Water in the desert, a matter of life and death. Christians find themselves in real needs facing matters of life and death. In the case of the Israelites and the Exodus, God would provide life-giving water. It seems that none of them died from thirst. In the case of Christians like you and I on our journey homeward, God will provide eternal life-giving resources But it doesn't mean we won't suffer, and it doesn't mean we won't die. What was true physically for Israel in the wilderness is true for us spiritually in the world. They would receive all the water they needed. We can receive torrents of living water, every spiritual resource that we need. With those resources, and I quote, we quench the violence of fire, escape the edge of the sword, become valiant in battle, turn to flight the armies of the enemies, we receive the dead raised to life again, and we are tortured, not accepting deliverance that we might obtain a better resurrection. We have trials of mockings and scourgings and of chains and imprisonment. We're stoned, we're sawn in two, we're tempted, we're slain with the sword. We wander about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented." 
Now, you recognize that as a long paraphrase from the 11th chapter of Hebrews, known to us Christians as the Hall of Faith. It lists many heroes and heroines of the faith according, uh, along with their accomplishments and their disposition in life. Which half of that paraphrase are you in right now? Are you in the half where you're being abundantly blessed? Or are you terribly buffeted? One of my favorite meditations, if that's the right term, is the story of James and Peter in the book of Acts. King Herod put to death James, the brother of John. He saw that it pleased the Jewish officials, and so he seized the apostle Peter and locked him up in the prison to await a similar execution. Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and there were guards before the door. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. He struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Peter was just content. Figured this was his last night on earth. He'd just sleep and have, uh, you know, see his beheading with a, a, a very rested body, I guess. And uh, so he was asleep so much so that the angel had to kick him. And so he kicks him, gets him up. Peter was able to walk right by or maybe even over the guards, and he escaped into the night. Why was James martyred and immediately after that, Peter spared? Well, some have suggested that it was because fervent prayer was offered by the church for Peter, but not for James. Now, we do read about the church praying for Peter, but there are at least two problems with the fervent prayer argument. First, we can't say that the church didn't pray for James. Just because it wasn't recorded, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. I'd say most likely they did pray for him, especially these early believers, uh, this, you know, this first century Christians. Uh, they, they were given to prayer. They were given to spiritual things. Uh, if you're going to assume something, assume that they did pray for James. Second, although their prayers for Peter may have been fervent, they prayed with some unbelief. When Peter showed up at the meeting after his angelic escape and knocked on the door, they refused to believe it was really him, even as they were fervently praying for his release. A servant girl went to the door and realized it was Peter and came back and said, Peter's at the door. And he said, don't bother us. We're praying for Peter. No, he's at the door. That's impossible because he's in prison and we're praying for him. And so, yes, it was fervent, but it wasn't believing. Uh, not one of them thought, hey, maybe it is Peter because isn't that what we're praying for? And so the prayer, uh, fervent prayer argument isn't a good one. A better, more biblical answer is that God had a different leading for James than he did for Peter. He called James home while sending Peter on to evangelize. Uh, God just had a different path, a different walk, a different timing for James. Paul the Apostle would put this into perspective later, talking about his own life. He would say, I want to go home and be with the Lord. That's my desire. But if the Lord wants me to stay here, then I'll serve him with everything I've got. And so that's what you see in James and Peter. Uh, you see the Lord taking one home, uh, leaving the other to serve him. Uh, and, and it wasn't a matter of who got prayed for or who had the greater faith. It was a matter of God's leading and God's will. And what we're seeing here in this section is that God can use your circumstances to learn you. And mostly it's to learn you that his grace is sufficient at all times and in all circumstances. It was sufficient for James to face martyrdom. 
and to go home to be with the Lord. Sufficient for Peter for all the days of his life on earth that he served the Lord and was persecuted until he too was finally martyred. It'll be sufficient for you in your times of abundance so that you don't become apathetic and fall away from the Lord, and it can be sufficient for you in your times of uh, being abased so that you will see the Lord and cling to him. God's grace is sufficient. In fact, I think probably in all the circumstances that you're always in, whatever the other lessons are, one of the main bedrock lessons is my grace is sufficient for you and that his presence in that grace is sufficient for you. Now, verses four through seven, God will not lead you to leave you. I wanna interrupt our study for a moment to bring you a public, surface, uh, public service announcement. Coffee is not a diuretic, contrary to popular belief. Now, it's commonly believed that you need to offset your morning coffee with a glass of water to stay hydrated. Coffee is supposedly dehydrates you. Oh, no. And so, therefore, you coffee drinkers are walking around barely alive. Better drink some water. But British researchers published a study in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, which compared several popular beverages to the hydrating effects of water, and they found you can hydrate with coffee. Now, it's not as good as water in terms of overall hydration, but it doesn't dehydrate you. And so sip that morning coffee with joy and know that you're being hydrated uh, and going for it, okay? Now, if the exodus were happening today, there'd be a Starbucks every few miles along the route the Israelites were taking. They could hydrate. But there wasn't, and there wasn't any water either. Do you like that segue? It was kind of a... It was, it was all right. It was not great, but it was all right. Verse four, so Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Emojis are a great way to communicate. For those of you from Riverdale, an emoji is a small digital image or icon. Now, please, people from Riverdale need to be brought up to speed. It's a small digital image or icon used to express an idea or an emotion in electronic communication. Electronic communication is something we can explain next week. <laughs> what I type can always be taken the wrong way. Have you ever sent a text message or an email and had it taken the wrong way? I mean, genuinely, you meant it one way and it was taken the wrong way. Uh, you often think of why well, I meant this to be a good thing and they thought I was insulting them. But the other opposite happens too. Sometimes I try to insult people and think, hey, great. And I thought, well, I guess I didn't say it right. And so emojis uh, help us to put that into perspective. Um, I can say something awful, but if it's followed by a winking yellow emoji... I've hedged my bets, right? I've covered my bases. Then you don't know what I'm trying to do. So then you send me back something awful with a smiley face, and we have a war of emojis going on. But anyway, emojis are helpful. Now, what does this have to do with anything? I don't have the slightest clue as to what emoji Moses would have added when he said, what shall I do with this people? I don't know if there's a smiley face, a devil head, uh, a cucumber. I don't know what he would have done. Was he angry? Was he perplexed? Was he sad? I'm saying we need to be careful reading emotions into the Bible characters, uh, things that we can't possibly know. And so I don't know where Moses was at. I do think we can assume the people really did want to stone him. 
I don't think that's an exaggeration. They kept thinking that God, through Moses, had brought them into the wilderness to kill them. And uh, before they died, they were going to take Moses out. And so verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. In ancient societies, the elders were simply the adult men, usually the older men. They assumed some leadership and counseling in the tribe. We'll suggest why Moses was told to take them in a moment. In verse 6, he says, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Let's talk about Horeb first. Strong's Concordance says that the word means desolate. And so you got to love this. They were already in the desert. They were at Rephidim where there was no water. And so God's solution was to go to a place even worse off than Rephidim called Horeb. And so they went from the desert to no water to absolutely no water and no hope of any water. And, and have, the question is, have you ever been asked to follow the Lord into Horeb? Have you ever been asked to follow the Lord into Horeb? You're already in a bad place, but I guess not bad enough because he wants to take you further in. And again, it's to learn you about his grace. Maybe you're there now, and instead of Horeb, you would just say it's horrible. I'd like to promise you you're about to be delivered, but I don't know if you're on a James track or a Peter track. I can again only say that God's grace will prove sufficient for you. Moses was instructed to strike a particular rock with his rod. I suggest this, too, was ridiculous. The rod could never penetrate the rock. No matter the force of the blow, the rock would not yield. I mean, Moses didn't take his rod and use it as a chisel with a mallet to try and find water. In the, this wasn't a rock known to have water. Nobody had concreted over it. It wasn't that kind of a tool. Moses was just, he just went out and, and struck the rock. And he was to believe that water was going to come from it. How does water come from a rock? It doesn't, especially in a place so dry it's called desolate. And so God had set this up so that it was undeniably, unmistakably a miracle. Psalm 78 gets a a description of this rock. It says, he split the rocks in the wilderness, gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. And so there's a couple of things to realize about this. One thing is that this is no trickle of water. It wasn't like a well that you just came to and put your pail in. This ran like rivers. Remember, there were several million Israelites along with innumerable livestock. They didn't just fill their canteens. This was a river of water. And another thing to realize is that the Israelites are gonna be in this general region for the next 11 months or so This is a continual source of water for about a year. Moses didn't just strike it for their needs right then. He opened up a river in the desert, a stream in the desert, a gusher in the desert to satisfy them. Now, the fact that Moses did this in the sight of the elders might indicate that it wasn't something that the Israelites witnessed, not all of them. It would have been hard anyway. It would therefore be up to the elders to spread the word as to how God had provided this abundance of water. It's a reminder to us that most of the people you and I know, they're not going to come to church. They're not going to go to a Bible study. They they see you. 
And you and I come to the water, as it were, and we see God's miraculous dealings in life and in history, and we're the ones that share this as elders, as it were, uh, with those who are not here. God went and stood by the rock at Horeb. Most likely, it was the pillar of cloud who moved onto the rock. And then according to God's command, Moses struck the rock with his rod and out came water. So you might say that Moses struck the Lord in order to provide this life-giving water. We'll say more on that in just a moment. But in verse 7, he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of, the, of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so the two words mean testing and contending. It's a compound name kind of like Dallas-Fort Worth or Minneapolis-St. Paul, this was Massa Meribah. It's a little sad that what was such a tremendous miracle would bear such a terrible name down through the centuries. Don't you find that sad? I, I mean, this should, have, this should have some kind of glorious name like you know, Israel's faith in God or water from the rock or you know, anything like that. But instead, there's the rock that Moses smote and water came out for 11 months like a river. What's it called? Tempting and contention because that's the attitude that the people had. It got me wondering if in heaven at the reward seat of Jesus, a lot of the things in our life might not have names. Some of the battles that we fought spiritual battles, some of the trials that we've been through, and what some of those names might be. Uh, I would hope that we would uh, have more positive names, more victorious names, but it's interesting. They asked the Lord, is the Lord among, or they asked Moses, is the Lord among us or not? And in asking that, that was how they were tempting God. Because what they were saying was, God, prove that you are among us by giving us water. Now, God had already proven he was among them and that he was for them and not against them. So he'd gone to great lengths, if you stop and think about it. Over 400 years earlier, God promised Abraham that he would be with his descendants when they were captives in Egypt and that he would set them free. And that had happened. He promised he'd raise up for them a deliverer and that happened. God was definitely among them during the 10 plagues that they witnessed. He manifested himself as a pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night. He literally was among them in a visible way. The cloud prohibited the advance of the Egyptian army as they came to destroy the Israelites. God parted the Red Sea so the Israelites could cross over on dry ground. He unparted the Red Sea, killing the Egyptians who pursued in their chariots. Then he provided sweet water from bitter water at Marah, and then he sent quail for meat, and he'd been giving them manna every morning. And after all of that, it's incredible that they say, God, prove that you're with us. Prove that you're with us right now, or we're going to kill Moses is what it sounds like to me. We're similar when we demand that God change our situation. We seem to forget that he saved us from sin and Satan and the second death. Wow. You ever just reflect on his salvation and how, especially if you got saved later in life as an adult, how literally one second you were a hair's breadth away from going to hell. Had you died, you would have been in a Christless eternity, paying for your own sins living out the second death forever and ever in conscious torment. 
but then Jesus revealed himself to you through the Holy Spirit, and you realized that you, he had conquered sin and Satan and the second death and given you eternal life, and you were on the heaven track? Do we disregard the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the power to believe that God is sufficient? And often we willfully ignore anything marvelous God has already done in our past. We have Maras in our past. We say, well, yeah, God provided you know, better water from bitter, but now there's no water. And so I don't see how God is gonna do this. And so I, he has to do something right now to my liking. But God doesn't lead you to leave you. He is often more present in times that he seems absent. Now, it sounds contradictory, and that's why we have these examples God is more present in times when he seems he's absent. That was true of these children of Israel. He seemed absolutely absent. There they were at Rephidim, looking at each other, listening to their children cry and their animals bellow and low and and thinking there's no water here, not even bitter water. What are we going to do? God has abandoned us here. He's brought us here to die. We've read a few verses down and we know that God was extremely present And he was going to do something marvelous in their lives. And that's really always the case. God is always more present than we realize. And just in the sense that there's more to this rock than meets the eye. The Apostle Paul wrote about this rock. He says that they all drank from the same spiritual rock. For the rock they drank from that followed them was Christ. In some sense, the striking of the rock at at Horeb, resulting in the provision of water, provides us with an analogy of the one who is our rock and who gives us spiritual water to drink, Jesus Christ. He wasn't the rock, not literally. It's a type. He was represented by that rock. We saw that rock was struck while the pillar of cloud was there and that God was in that sense struck. The Israelites wouldn't have understood, but we know that Jesus, in order to save mankind, he had to be struck. He had to be smitten and to die for the sins of the world. According to a guy named James Jordan, and I quote, the glory cloud stood before Moses, and when Moses struck the rock, his rod passed through the cloud. The Lord thereby submitted to the rod of judgment, taking the punishment the people deserve for their insolence, and out of his vicarious suffering provided life-giving water. In short, when Moses struck the rock, he was also striking the rock, And it was the latter that really provided water for the people. Now, the the Israelites couldn't have known all the things that we know. They they couldn't have seen all of that. But they could understand that, you know, why did God position himself in front of the rock, on the rock? Why does the rod have to strike through the pillar? And, And they could have come up with some of this. And we now have more of it and can put it all together. Now, the rock Moses struck did not literally follow them. It didn't roll after them. I think that would have been cool, by the way, but that's not what's saying. The word them is not in the original Greek text. The sentence says, they drank of the water from the rock following the giving of the manna. One resource I consulted said the following, said there is no hint of movement of the rock in the Old Testament, but a legend developed on the basis of a Jewish interpretation that it actually traveled with them. And so it didn't. I should mention there is a second rock strike recorded in the book of Numbers. It's different, it's another occasion, and it's a different rock. Let me read you about that second rock because it tells a lesson too. Numbers 20, beginning in verse seven. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, 
and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? I don't think you need an emoji for that one. Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. Water came out abundantly in the congregation, and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those of you who know this story, Moses did not lead the children of Israel into the promised land. After 40 years in Egypt and 40 years in the desert of Midian and 40 years of wandering in the desert, he struck the rock twice and God said, you're disqualified, you can't go in. You can see it, but I'm gonna kill you and take you home to heaven before uh, you get into the promised land. Why? Well, because Moses disobeyed, striking the rock twice and not simply speaking to it. Commentators in general agreement that since the rock is a type of Jesus struck at Calvary, he's only to be struck one time. After his death, the Holy Spirit is given and all you do is speak to him. It opens up this whole beautiful representation. Jesus Christ struck for our sins, vicariously taking our punishment. Now we're able to speak to him and out of our bodies will flow rivers of living eternal water. Moses' disobedience accompanied by anger thus misrepresented God and his grace to the nation. Obviously, misrepresenting God is serious. And so we want to avoid uh, portraying God in ways that the Bible does not portray him. And the way, and there's a million ways of doing this, of course, but one way that a lot of times Christians do it is by falling into legalism. And by legalism, I mean you tell somebody that they must do certain things in order to be truly spiritual. There are always things that you do because you think you're truly spiritual. And so, you know, the old adage in Pentecostal churches was don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. And that was the idea. And there's always pet sins that people have and they say, oh, if you do this, you know, you're not, you know, even though the Bible doesn't directly say this, you're probably not a real Christian. And we end up misrepresenting God by being legalists. You can do the opposite end of the scale. You can minimize grace and say, oh, don't worry. God will forgive you. We never sin that grace might abound. We want to represent God the way the Bible represents him, as loving and as merciful and as gracious, uh, willing to hear and forgive and to heal and stuff. And so just know that. Now, despite the complaining and the contention of the Israelites, and despite this misrepresentation by Moses, on both occasions, God still provided the water. I would have said, that's it. What do you mean, am I among you? Find your own water. Or the second time, Moses, now I can't give water because you've ruined my analogy. We have to start all over again. But God graciously provides the water because what we're learning is the sub-theme this morning, God's grace is always sufficient for our need. No matter the need, God's grace is sufficient. It doesn't mean he will give us what we want. It means he will give us what we need. And so you've come and listened to a story about a man named Moses. It's about you too and the rock who was Jesus struck for you that you might live. My exhortation to you now is speak to him. Let's pray.